Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. I literally say this every time, but every time, and especially lately, I'm super excited to introduce the podcast and the guests. So this is episode 81 of the Petronas podcast, and I am delighted to introduce a fantastic guest to you. Um, this is Daniel Seaver with Fundair Resources, and he is the VP of Midstream and Marketing. So Daniel, welcome to the Petronas podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, this is. Very exciting because you are in, you're both in, you're in the DJ, which I do want to talk about. So you're a DJ operator and you're actually drilling right now and you're a private company. So all pretty impressive things um, and feats, I think, in Colorado. No doubt. Um, we it took us uh, a little while to get our first batch of permits and we can get into a little more of that. But when we acquired the business from uh, Whiting um, back in September of 2021, uh, didn't come with any permits and um, we bought it really on the pdp basis and um, obviously the geology in the dj is pretty compelling so yeah our first course of business was to go and get some permits yeah well um so i definitely want to talk about we want to get into the asset a little bit because i think a lot of folks if you're you've nerded up on the dj you're familiar with whitening's red tail asset and the stuff that you purchased but you guys also have an asset in which you guys go by i believe a different name um you guys but that's it's range right right um Ranger, yes. Um, and so that's the that's your Wamsutter asset in, and that's largely gassed, and that was purchased from HRM, um, and but that was originally BP, right? It was actually a conglomeration. Vanguard was part of it. Um, Samson was a majority of our production, actually. Uh, really, Southern Wamsutter, Green River Basin. Uh, we're in and around um, all of BP, Southland, now Crowhart's acreage, Williams okay. Crowhart's acreage. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, so you're, and I, you know, I know gas prices are not great, but I still think those are, you know, obviously last year that was a fantastic uh, asset. This, this right now is looking a little bit different, but um, I think for the long term, it, they're great. So you have, it, it's it's cool to hear of a private company that is actively drilling here in the DJ um, and was able to get permits, but also has a, a foothold in Wyoming, which I, I think is, um, you know, is for many of us who have thought and dabbled about you know, ENPs, this is kind of, you know, things that you would do. You, you'd have a toe in, in both waters. Um, so that being said, I will timestamp this because we've definitely seen some pressure on oil prices and we should talk about that because uh, WTI right now, it's it's Thursday, April 20th, folks. This is episode 81 of the Petro's podcast and WTI is 77.29. Uh, Brent, and this is going to be a bit of a problem for OPEC given they uh, did their whole moves to basically keep $80 oil, but Brent is sitting at 80.55. We've seen oil prices go from, in a handful of days, go from 80, 82 and change, nearly 83, down to 77. So that's a big deal. Um, Henry Hub is sitting at 222, and Dutch GTF is below 13 bucks. So that's a big one. Um, 30 year mortgages are sitting at below 670 at 6.67%. Those are moving all over the place, very much correlated with this 10 year yield. And I think today we can see it that, so the 10 year yield's around 3.5%. Four five percent, but that there's a lot of erratic moving in behavior. And if you're listening to Bloomberg or CNBC or following anything, you're clearly hearing a lot of noise with regards to job numbers. And um, and uh, UK has inflation of 10.1 percent still. So there's a lot of noise on what not just the Fed but other central banks are going to do. And um, the stock market just cannot help itself because it wants to go higher. And in order to do that, it has to keep 
anticipating Fed rate cuts. And so every time there's a bit of information that comes out and it doesn't follow in line with the Fed rate cut, um, that puts pressure on, um, it's sort of the inevitability that the Fed is going to have to raise rates 25 basis points. And I think oil feels that just a lot harder and a lot more severe than everything else because it the the dollar goes up a little bit and there's slight pressure instead of oil goes down and there was a couple things um and that was that uh there was a couple articles that came out um on hotchenstein almost hotchenstein envoy for or that works with the with biden administration did come out and say that they were thinking about filling up the petroleum reserve so that's, there's a lot of volatility there because we weren't going to fill it up and now we are going to maybe fill it up. And so that would be meaningful. Um, and so that was that just came out, um, I believe. Yeah, today that just came out today. And then um, there's a lot of fears of just basically, I mean, Bloomberg headline oil extends fall and global uh, global slowdown fears, technical correction. So every time you get ahead of it, every time oil gets ahead of itself, it comes back down. And I think it's it's at least to me and I would love your perspective on this. To me, it feels like. Um, it sort of needs to be around 75 from a technical perspective, uh, fundamentals like supply and demand, and that we're just we've got this five, you know, six, seven, eight dollar swing um, that's a little bit of it's a little fluffy, and um, part of that is because Asia is showing weakness, and I think that's why OPEC actually did some of these cuts originally was because we weren't seeing this sort of bullishness out of China that everyone has expected. But that's my initial two cents on the oil markets, which I think I think we should discuss a little bit, especially I'd love your perspective as a private operator. Yeah, uh, we obviously we're we're a mid mid cap small cap um, operator, so we don't control a lot of that. Obviously, like some of the bigger PXDs or Exxon's kind of control. Um, but I think our take on it is our investor thesis is pretty bullish in the in the probably near to medium term on on pricing. Uh, that was kind of the thesis. Our our investors raised their money in twenty June of twenty twenty. So. Uh, we still believe the thesis is there. Um, we think the fundamentals back kind of a longer runway for, I don't want to say, you know, what used to be lower for longer. I think now it's not probably a higher for longer, but it feels like with the lack of investment in the industry, there's going to be some sort of range bound between 80 to, I dare say, 100. I mean, it feels like that's crazy because I'm not sure if Joe's going to let that happen, but um, he's running out of kind of tools though. So, Yes, he definitely is. When I first entered the industry in 2008, it was kind of the peak oil. It feels like we're kind of getting there again. I'm seeing more reports about, you know, the only growing basin is going to be the Midland Basin, and that's only for the next four to six years. So let's feel like we're running out of the commodity, and it's really, okay, how does the demand side keep up with the supply side? And when I look out the window to I-25, the main corridor here in Colorado, there's still a lot of 95 98% gas-driven vehicles down that road. So how quickly do we change? And yeah, it feels like it's it's going to be a good kind of time for our industry, I hope, obviously with some pretty heavy tail or headwinds on the political side, especially here in Colorado. But yeah, we remain bullish, Trish. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm with you on in a long-term bullish story. I tend to, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of supply demand fundamentals, especially the economic ones that I think in the near term weigh on that up that true upside of you know how you know staying at a hundred dollar oil um but i think we're in a, a really really unique period of time and it probably is more like 2008 where we have um you know oil prices may may, may drop but then they come back up and truthfully there's so much geopolitical headwinds that they may not actually drop um to the substance to the what they need to be but it's really i it's there's so many um moving parts here 
they get, I think, really hard for folks. And so we end up, I think the industry, and no offense to the oil and gas industry, and I've said this before, but we tend to get into a group think of this is just convenient narrative that it's just going to go up and we're just going to be there. And I think we have to be careful that, you know, it is it is supply and demand. And, um, you know, it, as if, it's, if prices are going up, as the economy is going down, that doesn't actually bode well for oil um, it, and is bad. I mean, it, it can really hurt demand and not just not just here in the U.S., um, but globally. Um, but I, I was just in D.C. To, yesterday, just came back from D.C., and the day before I spoke at this energy security event for my um, my old boss uh, with, with the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And it was a pretty interesting group uh, because, I mean, there was there was a good amount of people there. Um, we had we had foreign embassies folks. Um, we had folks from um, the Japanese embassy that were there and various industries. And it was on, we're focusing on energy security. And I have to say, I mean, I'll be honest that the, the talk was, uh, it was still very, it was a, a much more honest conversation than you normally have in DC about energy, but there was still a lot of energy transition talk. And um, it, it was a sort of a reality a reality check of like, it's it's so, it's weighing so hard on folks, on policymakers, especially in DC. Um, and even those that, that know that we're gonna need oil and gas for a long time. And the problem with that is, is which I spoke to, um, and I'll be releasing as a podcast and everyone should listen because I was a, a very honest um, and very off the cuff uh, because I just basically said I don't have to be politically correct like the rest of them. And we spent a good, I mean, it was a couple hour conversation on sort of the state of the market. And I was explaining to these guys of, you know, we're producing 12 and a half million barrels a day today in the U.S., but there's so many regulatory headwinds. And actually, you know, if you talk to operators and I, Colorado is a whole different story for, for regulatory headwinds. But even, you know, when you're looking at that Dallas Fed survey that they put out and you're, you're hearing the responses and comments back from operators, they're so heavily skewed toward uncertainty and, and labor and shortage in this. But it's like the added uncertainty on the regulatory side and the pressure by the administration is just a huge weight. And so it's this piece of like, you know, overwhelming and pressure of investor sentiment and pressure of just this anti-oil and gas movement. And that's so critical for prices. So it's easy to sort of, in many ways, to be a bull there because you can just say, well, look, as long as we're getting pressured, the upside on production is going to be hard. And that's so, it, it is really meaningful because the private operators are the ones that have really driven activity and growth, particularly in the Permian Basin, whereas everywhere else production's been, you know, held in there largely because of the private skin, but it's been flat because the public operators just haven't gotten off to business and the public operators haven't gotten off the game because, you know, yes, they want to return money to shareholders, but also they have this massive amount of pressure on them and they're not getting rewarded by on share price performance. And part of the reason they're not getting awarded on share price performance is because these sentiment run oil and gas. So I really think this is kind of a cyclical thing that we have to think about long and hard. And it, it does matter to give a, I, the need for oil and gas and uh, is so critically important. And so if the US starts dwindling in, in growth, we went from you know five million barrels a day to uh, 12 and a half million barrels a day in, uh, you know, in a pretty short period of time. And we're the largest driver of growth over the last 15 years in the global oil market. It's a huge story. And so it's, um, I think we kind of get in this box of, of, well, we're just not gonna grow. And then we have this bullish thesis. And I think it's really important to think about, well, how do we grow and how do we, um, how do we think, you know, intelligently about that, both to make money, but also to have security of supply here in the U.S. and really have that resonate abroad. And I think uh, I really, truly think private operators have a, a crucial role to play, but in part because you are allowed to be more vocal than your public peers. Can I ask you a question, Trish? Because I, I run across this a lot and I can opine on it, but I think you're going to have better feedback is. So. When do we start running out of tier? So we see a lot of break-even charts. We we I see them once a week, and those are probably tier one break-even charts. When do we start running out of that inventory, 
and I know we can talk about the refract potentials and a lot of that, maybe uh, I would say technology that hasn't come to fruition yet. Um, or maybe it has, I'm not a down, I'm not a downhole expert, but I guess when does, when does tier two start coming into play? And is that the new wave where we now need $90 oil, $100 oil, depending on service costs, where tier two acreage now works and that's the next wave? Or are we, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so, and, and this is great because you can push back on this, but I would argue that you got a company like yourselves and are in a, people would look at you and say, you're in tier two. Um, and, and many folks would even be more brutal and say, you're actually in tier three. Um, so to me, and I say that in a very positive way, because um, I have never bought into the tier one, tier four stuff, um, mainly because no one ever defined that and gave us a perfect map and we all agreed upon it and, and did that. So I, and you know, when I was in DC, I, I pull up that map and I show people where the publics are and where the privates are at. And the publics are very, very cored up. You know, you can easily see where public operators have been drilling for the past two, since, you know, 2020 to now, they're very cored up and they stay in that area. And so when you look at where the privates are at and you see all the wells that have been drilled and, and include, you know, you really have to look at, you can look at just rigs and just see that itself. You know, the, the private operators are outside of the core right now, have been for the past three years. So I would argue that the privates have already been drilling outside of the core of the core. So they're in the tier two and tier three already. And so that argument is why I think it's so important is that if you look at the drilled and completed wells and forget, we don't have to argue what they are exactly a, a duck, but it's the fact that somebody came in and drilled a hole. Eventually it will be completed as a function of, you know, maybe some of them don't, but the point is they've been drilled. And when you look at that map and see all the, all the private ducks, it's incredible. I mean, they're just spread out so far. And part of that was because last year we had such high gas prices. And I really, I think that when we talk about tiered acreage, gas prices are huge in that because so much we, we can't, you know, how did, how did a given company talk about their core or their core or their, how did they tier that? And that's, they, they may have said this has a lower break even because it has less gas. Well, when gas prices get higher, um, that changes. And when oil prices get higher and gas prices are higher, that completely changes. And that gas drive is fantastic. It means that I can have a lower oil output in my well, but I can have a better gas drive. You know, I can have more gas as long as I have takeaway and the price is decent. Like this is win-win. You know, this is great. And so I think the tiered stuff got debunked a little bit just with gas on its and gas in itself with pricing, um, but then really has been fundamentally debunked because of private operators during from from COVID to now is that private operators saw prices coming up and were willing to take that risk. And that that's also been a fundamental debunking of, oh, private companies can't get the money. The industry doesn't have it. No one likes oil and gas. Private equity is not going to support this industry. Well, private equity, as you and I know, and everyone in this business knows that it's morphed and we call it, there's a lot of private, private money. That's, that's not, you know, the typical private equity and folks are, that are wanting to bet against inflation or just wanting you know, assets they understand, particularly money out of Texas, I think is very comfortable investing in oil and gas um, because they know it. So I, I think that has been, you know, sort of that has been debunked. And I think as prices go up or as prices, sorry, not even go up, but have been at $80 oil, $75 oil, tier two acreage is pretty good. You know, tier three acreage is actually, you know, in play. It's the inflation piece, as we all know, of how hard inflation was, I think, over the course of 2022 and part of 2021. That inflation piece, the getting the labor, all these pieces coming together, that's a critical part. And that has pushed up prices um, in terms of drilling completing prices. But 
I mean, you're not, no one's going to shut in wells unless prices go down to $35 a barrel and stayed there for three months. Um, and even then, I would wager that we're not going to see a lot of shut in wells. So it's really the threshold of producing. And that production, I think we, as analysts, we sort of look at this and we get a little skewed in terms of that production growth and the tiered acreage because we're not, we're looking at publics because that data is public. And we shouldn't be, we sh you have to be looking at everything and seeing where are they drilling. And the last thing I'll say is the productivity piece, when you're actually looking at all the productivity and you're normalizing it and you're throwing it all together, we should see a material decline or shift down in that productivity as all these companies have stepped out and we haven't. Now, obviously, you know this, I mean, wells are individual companies and everything. Yeah, performance is different given acreage. But if your returns are good, if, you ha if you're making the returns that you need to make, I think the tiered stuff gets that, that that conversation's different. So I think we've overly focused on core of the core and everything. And we tend to push the envelope every time prices get lower or this industry gets tougher and um, and prices have been good. So I, I think The Rock has a lot left to give. Good. Well, that's that's hopeful because, yeah, for me, it was very much when I think about obviously, I know the DJ pretty intimately. I've been here for five, six years now. And definitely there's. And obviously the head, oh my gosh, the regulatory stuff going on in Colorado with some of the urban nature of some of the drilling. So that's not geology based. That's really, you know, the core of the DJ is an urban area. Um, so a lot of folks have had to step out like us where, you know, we bought our asset almost on the Nebraska border there. Um, so geology aside, I think yeah, it feels like whether you believe tier one, tier two, tier three, um, my opinion of it is there will have to be some longer term price increase um, for inflation adjusted um, to help with the labor. And then also, yeah, we're, at least in the DJ, we're not able to drill a lot of the core, which is why you're seeing drilling rigs move out because right. you can't get permits in the core. So now, again, you've you mentioned it a couple of times, Colorado's a whole different animal. Um, and I agree with you, yeah, privates typically are the ones proving up the tier two so that the tier one guys come by us. That's right. Yeah, and and you guys, I, I think the, the, the regulatory stuff does skew... When, when you get these articles out of the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, you have to realize that these guys are not sitting here in the basin. You know, they're not day to day. They're not, they don't go regularly on a, on a frack crew. They don't, they don't see what's going on. So their ability to sort of analyze and understand and separate regulatory pressures and all th there's so many factors that impact the ability for a company to drill and complete a well. And now add all the public investor sentiment and pressure and ESG and energy transition, everything. So they look at this and just say, well, shale's dead. You know, the growth of shale's dead. Well, if I'm the Saudis or if I'm anyone else and I'm pushing the energy transition, that's a really convenient narrative as well um, because I can push that story. So a lot of people just don't push that back harder and um, and say, and, and of course, if, neg if you have so much anti-oil and gas movement and the negativity around it, why would you want to even talk about the growth of shale or the, the capacity of shale? Um, so I think we just, we have to be a little bit careful of that. And, and you're 100% right. I mean, you guys are that step out. And that's what I think is, is so amazing about this business is every time the industry's pushed, that like you're pushed to step out, you perform every single time. Now, it's not all, it's not perfect. And companies, you know, perform less than others. And, and you know, you may have a better drilling engineer, or you may have, a, you know, but all that sort of over time gets sorted out. And that's why I say is like, not every company is performing with their A game. And that even is more bullish for The Rock. Because if I was, if everybody's performing at their A game, um, it, a lot of it has to do with that knowledge of The Rock, how you execute, you know, your access to infrastructure. I mean, Colorado also has even the places that people are able to drill. They don't have access to infrastructure, so they're not they don't have the takeaway capacity. So um, I love your point about, and maybe this is where we can pivot into this. But your point about uh, the core of the core in 
in Colorado being you're not able to get permits. Um, so you guys are drilling. You guys have a rig running, which is awesome. Um, and um, I'm going to, you know, if you want somebody to visit that rig and, you know, maybe tweet about it or something, I would raise my hand here. Um, so you guys are northeast, like you're in the northeast area of Weld County, right? Um, so no northeast side. So, I mean, you as a company and you just said, hey, we, we were sort of like pushed into this area. So private companies overall, I'm guessing there's been, and I know this, that there has been a lot of interest in folks wanting to transact over the last three years, not just in Colorado, but in North Dakota elsewhere, and have actually had difficulty, which also kind of supports in many ways a bullish side for the industry that people don't want to get rid of their assets. But the other side of like in Colorado, it's tricky uh, because if you can't get permits, you can't do anything. So let's, can you just talk about that? I mean, we know you're in Northeast, but talk about the like you know, we'll starting point of the regulatory stuff, because I think a lot of folks uh, who aren't in Colorado listen to this podcast probably are not completely aware of how how crazy it really is in Colorado. And then we can get into this new bill, which could make it a hell of a lot worse. Yeah, um, I'll start kind of higher picture just from. So our investor base uh, comes out of California. So they're they're no strangers to kind of regulatory environments and kind of how things can change and really how far they get pushed, which it does feel like how far they get pushed versus how far it actually goes. Like there's still production in California. Now, is it difficult? Oh yeah, no doubt. But our, our investors definitely understand that, Hey, you know, it's, it's typically not as bad as it comes out to. Um, and then, then we focus in on Colorado and we think about uh, Senate bill 181. Before that, we had a couple of um, ballot initiatives that got put on by the citizens. And, you know, we're always kind of fighting this uphill battle and SB 181 at the end of the day, um, it alleviated a lot of that concern that, the state government had and said, hey, all right, local governments, you guys make your decisions now. You're in control. And actually, from a, from a net overall, it hasn't been it hasn't been a negative because I think what you've seen over in 2022 and you've actually seen some announcements from like Savoxy that they're going to start bringing rigs back in because you see these comprehensive area plans. And the acronym for that is CAP. Um, folks are starting to get approval. So there's a lot of runway for the larger producers in the core. I'm not super intimate with kind of how close some of these developments are to houses. I know there's a lot of different uh, hurdles that you need to jump to make sure. And some of them are probably fine because I'm sure, you know, I live in Denver and I'm not sure if I want to drill and rig next to my house. Now I'm pretty educated and I, I wouldn't, I don't definitely wouldn't protest it, but yeah, just like right next to the house, you know, I would, so it's something you got to think about. And I think giving the local voice kind of a chance to speak is pretty important. And I think we did that. And actually at the end of the day, now you're getting, um, a better chance to actually plan your development. So there's 300 permits coming out of some of these comprehensive area plans. And actually as a midstream uh, person, I kind of like that because I can plan pipeline development right. in a way I can plan compression and processing. It actually helps from the planning perspective. And then kind of in the Northeast, obviously one of our main goals, getting out of the course of focusing in on the Fundera business. Um, yeah, we're, I operated in North Dakota 10-ish years ago and um, it was even more urban than it is in where we are, it's, there's no houses and um, landowners are generally friendly. Obviously, everybody yeah. kind of wants to know what's in it for them. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's a it's a good area. And I think that's where probably the state is trying to push some of the development because they're not getting phone calls where we're at. Um, it's just there's we're in an area where not a lot of individuals live and um, it's mostly ranching land. And yeah, we're trying to change the narrative on the business, which we can get into a little later. But right now uh, we, we got our first eight permits. Um, what the COGCC is trying to do is uh, make sure that if you're going to develop, make sure that you do it in the most efficient way, either through the CAP program or through the, um, oh, I'm going to butcher it, it's 
there's actually an acronym for it. Um, but they want to go on existing land that you've already got disturbed. So if you have a one well kind of held by production pad, try to use that to expand on it and drill the rest of your infrastructure on it. Don't go, go build four pads if necessary. Um, go electric if you can. Um, that's, that's a big drive here in Colorado through this Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So we're fully electrified on our upcoming pad. We're also tankless um, on this pad that we're building on now. So the only emissions really are going to be from fugitives, from flanges. And um, we have an instrument air compressor, so there's no fugitives from valves, really just the flanges of where they tie in together. And we're going to make sure we're going to have a camera that can come and look at all those emissions. So we're trying to do all the right things. So we actually try to, and our investors know this being from California, is we actually try to be, we court ourselves as the leaders in environmental kind of oil and gas. And we think we have the greenest molecules kind of out there because uh, we, we're, we're held to the tightest standards. And yeah, we all, like you said, here, last, we adapt. Well, you sound a lot like my, the previous podcast I had with Ryan Keyes, who, um, with Triple Crown, who was talking about the same thing of, and I think there is something about a center, the, the folks who are backing these companies are, are these private companies are, are sort of pushing this or as long as it's making, if the math makes sense, right? And, and I think a lot, nobody in the industry wants to do bad things. It's not like we're intentionally not trying to comply with things, but I, I would like to push on that a little bit from the air emission standards because um, and, you know, going tankless, a lot of this, I mean, so you have to have the funding, you have to get all your ducks in a row before you're doing this, no pun intended, but I mean, literally things have to be aligned for you to do that. And it doesn't, with, with strict permitting standards, um, it's not like you can shift something. So it needs to be done one and done. I mean, it's not like you can move stuff around, I think, easily once it's sort of everything's approved, right? So everything's got to be buttoned up and it doesn't give a whole lot of flexibility for, I mean, any kind of changes in, um, you know, pricing variability and drilling and everything. So the, the, I guess the, some of my biggest issues with the changes from the permitting stuff with the COGCC is how, you know, it went from being a sort of business procedure as in, you know, it, we are, our goal as the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is to um, drill, to permit wells and, and to understand that permitting. Whereas now, um, and I say political in, in sort of a more, a more loose fashion, but it, it there's, uh, policies behind that. It's, it's more of a political, you know, environmental justice and, and all these things that come around it. And so it's no longer just about business or permitting and, and people can agree or disagree with that, but it changes the ability to actually fundamentally permit these wells. And so I hear you on these, uh, the, the cap or the big comprehensive programs, um, but that inherently favors the big guys. And, um, and I struggle with that a little bit too, is because it's like, well, you know, a lot of these folks politically are, are, you know, big corporations and profits and everything. And it's really sad to me, in Col particularly in Colorado, that, you know, everybody, if you listen to the regulators, you know, there and everybody in this, you know, that's that's championing this stuff is, is talking about how great it's been in Colorado, how now we're getting permits and it's really good. And it makes it sound like it's been awesome, but it has forced massive consolidation. It has put folks um, in, I mean, it has put folks out of business, let's put smaller businesses out of business. And, and then, you know, when you have this consolidation, I, I don't know about you, but if you look at the jobs out there in Colorado, when, when these companies collide and consolidate, 
most people get let go and most of the engineers are looking for work in Texas and oh, they're hiring environmental people here in Colorado and there's ESG people left, right and center and energy transition people at these oil companies, you know, running this stuff. But it has really shifted like the ability, the, these companies have had to pay a ton of money to, you know, just be able to comply with the 500 page documents of these, the permit stuff versus, you know, they were 30 pages before and maybe they should have been higher before, but the level of intensity is huge. Um, and so I, I get sort of mixed messaging in terms of now we're approving stuff, PDC is getting permit, you, PDC I think has north five rigs. You know, people are actually drilling and that's fantastic, except what's the real runway? And this new bill that came out, um, you know, it's it's messy. I've, I've went through it and just, just listened to it uh, just now. Um, but the stuff on the air emission stuff, and prior to even all the regulatory stuff, we had some of the most intense air emission standards in the world in Colorado. <laughs> well prior to SB 181. So I'm kind of curious, like the low hanging fruit's gone on the emissions. So where are we, like now that this new bill has come out, this it's bill 23-12, you know, um, 94, which includes oil and gas, but also industry in general on this emission stuff. So I'm really curious, I don't know how intimately you know that, um, but you know, what's your, what your thoughts on that and, and sort of where are we at? Because it doesn't seem like the road is, you know, kittens and roses and daisies to me. No, definitely not for smaller operators. I think you nailed it. I think um, I think there's been some pretty tough. We had the we had a fire up in Firestone five six years ago that obviously I mean it was wasn't good for the industry, and it was old older wells that there was a leaking flow line and you know so th there's been things like that that have happened and then also the, the politicians I think from what we're hearing they're they're tired of getting calls from landowners with you know I, I'm smelling this or the, the ground rumbles when this happens or so there, I think this is one of the only spots in the country where you have this urban development pushing into oil and gas. And these politicians are trying to really kind of blend that the air emissions, in my opinion, is a whole different kind of, that's almost trying to just kill the industry instead of trying to work with the industry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think the politicians are trying to do the best that they can. I, as, as kind of, it's interesting for me to say that, but, they're, they're stuck in the middle because a lot of the population is moving that direction. You have a lot of oil and gas development going there. They're looking at them like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to minimize the amount of phone calls I get every day. And I get a lot of complaints about this. So I need to go and try to fix this because I'm getting a lot of complaints about it. And maybe it's one of those things where the squeaky wheel, you know, gets fixed. And maybe it's not the majority. But and, you know, I think we've tried to do a better job as an industry. Uh, and obviously it's not working, but to try and spread kind of what the value is for what we do and how we, you know, can feel basically on a cold, really cold day, how you heat your home. Um, but yeah. And then if we want to get in the air side, we can, I am, I'm not super instrumental. I haven't read the bill like you, Trish, but yeah, it does feel like more of a, there's a couple of them. One is a ballot initiative that's about to go on. And I think there's another one really non-attainment and the ozone issue that um, I think depending upon who you talk to that we have here in the, uh, in the front range, kind of the northeastern front range, it's interesting. So, what what is the? I mean, uh, I mean, so on the current side, you guys are able to you're able to comply with it. All the the existing stuff, you you were able to get permits. Um, how do you? I mean, you were able to get permits. I, I don't know how many you have, but like you're able to get them. You're actively drilling, and then you're you know you're you're going. You have no t tank list. You've got the infrastructure, so you're able to make it all work. Uh, and then, I mean, so. When you're reapplying, I assume you're actively applying for permits. 
is there a you know dialogue with the COGC where there's a more of a comfort level now than probably two years, you know when this bill was first passed? I know we basically went to nothing for permit approvals, and now yeah, it's, right. it's 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 slowly starting starting to come back. So I mean, is there a, a does that feel better? It I does. Guess, oh, yeah. the question. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I think having a governor that has been consistent. Um, I think whenever you have a governor change, it feels like it always resets because each governor has to put their stamp on kind of what they're doing so they get to that next level. And obviously Polis may have hopes to get to that next level. So uh, yeah, it definitely feels better. People are getting permits. Um, I think there's some bulls in the DJ. I mean, you look at what Bison has done here over the last couple months and their acquisitions and um, Civitas continued to bolt on last year with the Bison acquisition. Um, I, to your point, though, I just think the small guys are going to struggle because I know the bonding's going up. Um, the emissions, I think we're, we're limited now in some parts of the basin to 25 tons per year of emissions uh, on a NOx and CO2 and VOC basis. So that can be pretty difficult if you don't have the infrastructure to kind of help you out. Right. Um, so definitely the smaller operators are going to get hurt. And, yeah, and we don't, there are some, I think there are some operators that really probably create some of the issues for the state and they're trying to push them out. So there's it's this really kind of fine line that both sides are playing because you also have this mineral issue that, hey, I own property here and it, when does it right. become a taking? So well, it's, it's super complicated. And and yeah. I mean, I think, and you, you, put, you put the nail on the head of like the, the development is very close to housing. Um, I would say that if you have not been on, I mean, I've been on some prec locations recently and I mean, they're still very, they're still very close to homes and you can also still have, um, uniquely in Colorado, nearly million dollar homes next to, uh, next to drilling completion activity, next to actual wells. And that's because, uh, the value of, the, of these homes. And there are a lot of folks that, I mean, they have signed off and agreed to this, you know, this activity. I mean, we have sound walls now in place. I've had Heidi Gill on the podcast to talk about that. I mean, there's the standards because this is a unique urban drilling environment. It's just, it, it's very different, but there's also kind of knock on effects. I think of, you know, from emissions and from, um, from that the does really impact business in terms of anybody be able to voice a complaint on something. Um, yes having a healthy living standard and, and having noise and all these things, that's annoying. But like, how long are, is the rig actually there? How long is fractally actually there? It's not there that long anymore. I mean, this is not a permanent thing. This is not, you know, a year of someone's life. They're here. This is, these wells are spud to TD in sub three days. And yes, there's many wells on a pad, but this is done really quickly from a drilling perspective. And then, the, then it's fracking. I mean, and yeah, this is a period of time, but like that there's all this is, is taken into consideration to some extent in, in compensation and everything and getting these permits. So I do think that, I mean, the, the thing that people I think have to really appreciate is that, you know, proposition one twelve after, after the Firestone explosion, which wasn't a small company. I mean, a lot of folks, a lot of this is blamed on extraction, which is now Civitas, for because extraction really did push the envelope of putting drilling very, very close to homes. And, um, you know, they got that. They got the folks to agree to it. So I'm not saying good or bad. It is what it is. And then you also have those housing developers that developed next to production. So, you know, it's not just oil and gas. It's the developers. Everybody wanted to make money here. So they developed that. And, and that... The Firestone thing was an extraction. It wasn't a small startup. It was Anadarko. And Anadarko had bought that those wells, those old wells from Noble. And nobody likes to talk about that. Um, but that was Anadarko. Obviously, you know, um, 
that since you know Enadark has been purchased and everything, but like now it's it's Oxy. But I mean, that was how that happened, and a house did blow up, and that was super super serious. So that was something very very small, a basic mistake. That wasn't drilling too close to homes. That was turning on a well without running a pressure test and making sure that you know the, the making sure you had probably savvy pumpers, and that was basic safety um, that should have never happened and, and been tested. So drilling next to homes is is uh, it, I guess the when I'm reading through this new bill and, and everybody talks about the air emission standards and when they talk about environmental justice within, within this stuff and they talk about impoverished communities being more hurt than others. And it's also, you know, the folks in Weld County, the ones they were largely, you know, they Weld County produces almost all the oil and gas in Colorado, um, as you know. And those people supported or, or defeated Proposition 112, not because they all are making bank because of the mineral rights, um, but because they are from the industry and support the industry and their livelihoods and businesses and everything is tied to the oil and gas industry. And I mean, I'm third generation oil and gas and I grew up around this. And so when you understand it, you know it, it isn't as fearful, but it's also, um, it's, it's like in Texas, you can build a pipeline because everybody's comfortable with this. They, they understand how it works. And I think we have to really appreciate that the folks in, in Weld County are okay with this. And um, that, that's what's really frustrating is, um, you, you're right, you have some consistency with the governor, although when he gets out and he talks about unre how, how unreliable natural gas is, he sends a lot of mixed messages. I do not think he's a friend of the oil and gas industry. I think he plays multiple sides because he likes to get reelected. And I think a lot of folks in the oil and gas industry like to schmooze with him to make themselves feel good, but I don't think it does much. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the, the stuff that came out from, there are a lot of folks, we know there are a lot of folks in Colorado who would love to see this industry be gone. Um, just like we know people, the folks who are anti-nuclear for, for what it, you know, and don't want nuclear facilities and Germany just shut down nuclear facilities. It's something that I think in Colorado, we really do have to appreciate is that are these bills in place because, and I want to know truthfully, because are they in place because, you know, here's the standards, here's the regulations, just industry, you go hit them and we'll approve this permit. Or is this a backdoor way of doing Proposition 112 and trying to limit, um, you know, severely limit activity to where you eventually kill the business? And, you know, this was a, you know, 100% Democrat bill that was proposed. Um, and so and it, it, I need to talk to some experts and understand it better to what it's actually doing. But, you know, when you keep putting these hurdles and hurdles and hurdles and you already have some of the most strict air emission standards in the country, and it's not just oil and gas, it's other activity. Um, it's business or it's it's industrial activity, which could really impact you know hotels and businesses and everyone, um, which is a pretty constraining economic factor for Colorado and just another knock-on thing. So my apologies for that rant. Feel free to you know. No, take that yeah. Yep. It's, uh, I agree with you 100. I think it would be interesting, Jerry. I don't know if you, you probably have some of this. Is I felt like I, I I read conflicting studies. How much of it is oil and gas versus vehicle emissions versus um, industrial power plant, you know, I, are we just getting targeted? And is there actual factual evidence out there that backs the air emissions from the oil and gas industry? Or is it, or is it, uh, yeah, is it real? You know, and I, I don't know. Do you have any? It's for CO2 emissions, just on the face of it, it's, it's very small. So you, that's where I think it's, I, I really try to, you know, talk to operators about this and to be on, to be educated is that, you know, it, all U.S. CO2 emissions for oil and gas production is 1% of emissions. Now, 
for CO2 emissions. Now, when we get into methane and we talk about measuring and stuff, I do believe there's probably that, that number sort of shifting and changing because we have better measurement. And uh, I think it was Ryan Keyes, who I just had on the podcast with Triple Crown, who was telling me that, you know, what they were getting from the EPA versus when they actually were measuring at themselves, they were emitting a lot more on the methane side. But then they were able to address that. And, you know, they saw it as a money-making opportunity and, and gas prices, you know, especially when gas prices are higher, of capturing all this and just doing the right thing. So, um, and, and the, increasingly, the more I talk to folks is that, especially if it's a newer activity, it's very, it's much easier and, and it's not cost prohibitive to capture this stuff and to reduce those. It's, a, it's definitely harder on the older stuff, on the older facilities. And I, I, I would encourage folks to get very technologically savvy and, and not shut in these wells and work on capturing that if that's our goal. Because I think when you have an agenda to just go and shut in stuff, it gets slippery slope and it gets pretty creepy. And in Colorado, the plugging in a band, you know, PNA and everything has been a huge incentive. Just, just get rid of that. And so we've lost production. And I, I don't think, as as you made the case for this very bullish story on, on oil demand long term and and where we're at, it, we cannot afford to be shutting in all our stripper wells. Um, and because because of emission things, we we have to be thinking about energy security in that context as well. So I think that um, it, it's not. In some cases, it's not as much, and in other cases, it is. And maybe for methane, in some cases, it's higher. But for CO2 emissions, it's not. And we do have to be careful with that, too, because, you know, NOx and SOx, uh, we have very high standards in this country for NOx and SOx emissions, the highest in the world. And so that's why we have uh, our autos function the way they do. I mean, we have clean, you know, cleaner... Uh, we have cleaner air typically than actually Europe because of the autos. Now, when you, when you, ch when you push CO2 emissions on autos, you push miles per gallon. And that's what got them into the whole Volkswagen scandal and everything, because you have to forego NOx and SOx on autos, to my understanding, at least as a few years ago. Um, you have to forego that a little bit if you want the miles per gallon. So, you know, I, I always say no energy is free. And we, we get into some tricky territory here with these, you know, air quality. And I'm not saying we, we, we shouldn't be having better air quality, but it's that, um, you know, to what standards. And, and I really would love to know how this is going to impact also the Suncor, the refinery we have in Colorado as well. Um, because, you know, they've been battered up and there's a good contingent of folks in Colorado who I think would love to see no refinery in Colorado. And that refinery is really critical for maintaining uh, just stable oil price, stable gasoline prices, diesel prices. And whenever it goes out and we see it, you do see a spike in or in gas diesel prices specifically. But it also supplies a lot of jet fuel for the airport. And um, so and it's important for you guys because, I mean, a lot of that crude, they're getting local crude. Um, so it, it, it matters. Obviously, you're in midstream, so you know this stuff really well. But it's it's just really critical. The value chain, you know, from upstream uh, to downstream is um, really, really essential um, to understand all this. No doubt. Yeah. Um, you, to be fair, Trish, you know it better than me because, yeah, you look at it worldwide and now it all ties together. But definitely on a micro level, we saw gasoline prices here in Denver go up. I think I was paying like 450 when, you know, at the yeah. whole time oil prices were going to high 60s, low 70s when that was kind of happening. And I think they've got some of it back online. Is that right? Or yes. Majority? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so when it when it when things are going up, I mean, and going down. But I mean, for you guys, you're in the midstream side. And I think, you know, uh, our, our colleague, Jeff, we talk about this a lot, uh, our mutual colleague, Jeff, but about midstream. I think you need to know if you're in midstream, you have to intimately know upstream. Um, and you actually, you have to know downstream really well as well. Um, and most people don't appreciate that. Like that's like, a, a, you can't just be a midstream person and just understand and understand pipelines. So, I mean, for you and your career, you've probably focused, I mean, you've been focusing on upstream your whole life. 
Um, but you guys yeah. now, what's the biggest, what's the biggest factor is getting it to, is getting it to markets, getting it to local refinery and, and where, where are you guys taking your, your, I believe it's around 3000 barrels a day you're producing right now. Um, yeah, all that, right. where's that going right now? Yeah. So we're, uh, just a quick overview on the businesses. Fundair produces about 3000 barrels of oil, about 20 million a day of gas and that's wet gas. So we have some NGL production that comes off of that. Then we own and operate a gas plant and a crude oil system in Colorado that we also acquired from Whiting as part of the acreage. Um, and that's a 65 million a day gas plant that is expandable up to 40. We already have the plant. We just need the compression. And then we have a crude pipeline, which ties into Pony Express. Um, and then in Wyoming, we produce about 20, 25 million a day of gross gas. Uh, that's in and around Wamsutter. Um, and they're both very different assets from, they're both Rockies, obviously. So generally we're tying into the same markets and but they're different assets because one is obviously a very heavy gas asset. And one is predominantly oil asset from a revenue basis standpoint. Um, and we we own the midstream in Colorado. So we get to play all the games that the midstream guys play with NGL. Where do our NGLs go to? We want Conway, Bellevue. What does the TNF look like? We get to play the oil game. Um, and then the gas game is obviously getting more interesting with kind of West Coast demand last winter. And it cont continues to hold pretty strong. But problem is there's not enough pipeline transport to the west coast to right. overthrust and some pipelines are just full to get that direction so um we're thinking of some pretty creative things to do in the grain river basin um to potentially maybe try to harvest more of that value but uh it's been a lot of fun to kind of mesh the midstream skills that i have over the last kind of six years with creating value for our upstream organization uh, it really feels like there's a lot of value to be had and i'll put a plug for all the upstream companies, go hire yourself a midstream marketing person that can kind of think through some of these things because there is value um, to a lot of that. And there's a lot of organizations that actually help do that. And yeah, I kind of get it now because I spent so much time on the midstream over the last six years. I'm definitely looking at upstream, but yeah, it's, I think sometimes you make decisions, you're like, hey, I'm going to go drill a well, the values in drilling the well. But right now we're so driven by, hey, we need to return cash, make sure we our investments make money to our investors that every penny, when you think about a penny in MCF, when you're producing 25,000 a day, it, it, it adds up. So, yeah. So does that, I mean, well, I think that's, I like the, I like the plug on the midstream side. Cause I think I spent a, I've worked with a lot of midstream companies and I've spent a lot of, I mean, half of that is, is valuating assets on the upstream uh, for the midstream guys and yeah. worked with, I think one of my first projects in Colorado when I first started my business was uh, an asset valuation on the DJ. That's how I came to know the, the red tail stuff and, and quickly oh, yeah. just looking at production and, and what's good and what's bad. And then, you know, digging below that. So I've, I've always loved uh, production data. And then the midstream piece is that piece that is great because you need to know how it gets to market. But even more, then that goes to the downstream of what type of crude is this and where is it going and who's going to refine this and which which market does that, you know, how does that work? And so I think you're right, uh, especially smaller private mid, uh, upstream companies, when you don't have a midstream or down a person very familiar with the broader market, um, aren't, is not capturing sort of the, the the value there and that arbitrage opportunities or just being able to, you know, get stuff put together on the face of it and then, you know, really make sure it's getting to market. Uh, it's sort of like having a supply chain person and making sure, you know, you have tubulars and pipe um, and everything. But I mean, you, ha you have to have all the pieces um, and you can, I, I know working with companies that you really see it when companies have those people, it just, it's, it's a night and day difference and it's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's thinking the whole picture and speaking about Jeff, like is finding someone that not only knows midstream, but how does it affect upstream? I think is, is pretty important. And also, 
like we have two midstream counterparties in our Green River Basin asset, uh, Williams and Western, and work well with them and kind of try to understand, you know, what are the margins, you know, what are they getting out of this, make sure that they're actually profitable too, because it, Green River Basin is actually a decline, has been a declining basin. So, you know, we want to make sure that our, our midstream counterparties are going to, going to be there and they're going to continue to take care of us. Um, and we look for that. We look for kind of win-win situations. We're not in the business to kind of get the best deal. Uh, we want both sides to make sure that everyone kind of walks away from this with, okay, we want to do a deal again together. I think that's where we were able to raise money in 2020 when, you know, it was just the reputation of um, both the two, the three founders of the business, um, starting Bonanza Creek, starting Fifth Creek. Uh, it just takes time and you'll see kind of people come and go out of the industry, but people that stay, it's been a lot of fun. I've obviously getting to know the whole Fundair team has been a lot of fun too. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it sounds great. Um, well, so on the, on the asset side, I mean, I, and maybe you, you, you can or cannot answer this, but are you guys actively looking at assets then? Are you looking to purchase more? Um, yeah. and you know, the reason I asked that is because when, when I was speaking with, uh, with Ryan keys about this, we were talking about, you know, the evaluation side and we were t talking about shareholder pressure and buybacks and sort of the public valuations and private valuations. And he was mentioning, you know, Aventive's purchases and this, you know, end cap stuff and, and how expensive, you know, these, you know, the relative valuations of private guys are, are, are really expensive when, when really, I mean, when you're looking at these public guys, they're just getting murdered on, on the market. Um, so, so I, I love the answer. Like, so you're actively looking, but how are you guys sort of, you know, seeing, looking at the market um, and, you know, and if you're active, like what, what's the process where you at and how aggressive? Yeah, there's, to be fair, it's been, it's been quiet in the Rockies. We want to buy generally in the Rockies. So that limits us to Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, North Dakota. Um, and there just hasn't been a lot of, there's been a lot of consolidation, obviously, over the last couple of years. But um, we have a lot of good relationships with the banks. And as they come to us, I mean, we, we want some PDP behind the deal to make sure that we can underwrite it. Um, and then hopefully there's a little bit of upside there. Um, and typically in, in the Rockies, it's been nice where we haven't had to trade quite as high as probably West Texas or the Haynesville where, you know, two to two and a half times EBITDA type numbers seems to be where the valuations are coming in at. And everyone seems to be in that ballpark. Um, probably in West Texas, you're probably paying for some PUD value. I've, hence the, the Oventive deal buying of those, I think, was it three NCAP companies, Trish? Yep. Um, yeah, you're obviously paying for some upside there, but in the Rockies, we haven't seen that yet, which has been nice. Um, so we think we can still get some some decent deals here. And, um, there's no opportunity that's imminent on our end, but I would say, yeah, we're, we're active and we're looking. We want, our investors are happy. Um, we've been able to return 40% of our money back to our investors in 2022. And I mean, it's great returns and uh, they want to continue to try to grow the business and grow the platform. Uh, the way we yeah. set it up was Rangeview and Fundera are totally separate entities, and we probably do the same thing with the third entity is to stand up another fund and uh, buy it, unless it's kind of geographically in a similar region where we could take care of some synergies. Okay. And the good thing well, for us is that as our business grows, the GNA gets spread out, and um, yeah, you kind of get more efficient. So, are you guys, th there's a whole separate team for the Rangeview? Similar on, on the corporate side, same team. Uh, we split up our time between both businesses, obviously, um, because there are different investors in each. But yes, in the field, different, uh, totally different organizations. All right, folks. Sorry for the abrupt sort of closure there. 
We are definitely breaking this podcast into two. So um, this is part one that you've just listened to with Daniel Siever. This is episode 81 of the Petros podcast. And this conversation with Daniel actually went on for nearly two hours, um, not quite two hours. So we're definitely breaking this up in two. So thank you guys so much for listening um, and talk to you next week. Uh, part two with Daniel Siever, um, episode 82 will be out. Bye, guys. <laughs>